Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 222, The Dog Shogun. This week, I want to take some time to do a biography that I've been thinking about for a while. It is, in many ways, a rather unremarkable one. The person under consideration lived during a time of peace and prosperity, and thus might seem rather insignificant. He had few crises to deal with, and in many ways, little to do. And yet, he's interesting both as a man of his times and as a prefiguring of what was to come for Japan, and I imagine he's someone not many people know much about. So today, I want to take a look at the fifth shogun of the Tokugawa shogunate, Tokugawa Tsuneyoshi. Tsuneyoshi was born just as the final remnants of the old warring states era were being swept away, in the year 1646. Only nine years before his birth, the Shimabara Rebellion in Kyushu marked the last stand of Japan's Christians, and their defeat had marked the last gasp of Japan's pre-Tokugawa political order. By the time young Tsuneyoshi was born, Tokugawa's supremacy was unquestioned, even as the enemies of the Tokugawa held on to their old grudges. Another fascinating transition was taking place around the time Tsuneyoshi was born. The old generation of samurai was dying off, and a new one rising to prominence. The final generation of daimyo, who could remember a time before the rise of the Tokugawa regime, had begun to die off around the 1620s. For example, Tokugawa ally Uesugi Kagekatsu had passed on in 1623, while the second Tokugawa shogun, who grew up while his father was still a middling daimyo, Tokugawa Hidetada, died in 1632. By the time Tsuneyoshi was born 20 years later, even the youngest warriors who could remember the old days were passing away, leaving behind a new generation of samurai, the ones who had been born and raised in peacetime. This began to raise an interesting question for the samurai class, one that we've talked about before. What did their identity as a warrior class mean now that there were, in fact, no more wars to fight? For the samurai of the 1640s, the question was a very potent one, one that was generally confronted through a peace-through-strength approach. The old wars were done, but what had done away with them was the military might of the Tokugawa state. Therefore, the samurai had to remain prepared for war. In their preparedness, they would be assured of never fighting it. The 1640s, then, was a time when the new generation of samurai continued to view themselves as warriors first, their transition into Confucian scholar bureaucrats who merely paid lip service to their martial past was beginning, but it was far from complete. That dynamic will play a big part in the life story of Tokugawa Tsuneyoshi, though in 1646 very few people knew that. He was just one more child in the shogunal family, born to the third shogun, Tokugawa Iemitsu, by one of his concubines. Now, Iemitsu, he's an interesting fellow. He was the one who completed the imposition of the so-called closed country policies of the Tokugawa, though of course, as we all know, the country remained partially open to the Dutch, Korean, and Chinese, and really was no more closed than, say, Korea or China were. He also lived a rather interesting personal life. Iemitsu strongly preferred the company of gentlemen, if you know what I mean. He was prepared to do his duty and father children with his wives and concubines, but that's what he viewed it as, duty. 
He was also a jealous man. He famously had his favorite male lover, Sakabe Gozaemon, executed after learning that Sakabe had been flirting with other men. Iemitsu also had a rather profound stain on his personal life because he had ordered his younger brother, Tokugawa Tadanaga, confined under house arrest for insanity and eventually executed. It was whispered, and probably is true, that Tadanaga was actually perfectly mentally competent. Iemitsu had ordered him killed because some had wanted Tadanaga as shogun instead of him. Iemitsu was, in fact, such a scandalous figure that even the ruling emperor, who normally focused on calligraphy, not politics, was known to have publicly insulted him many times. So as you might imagine, Iemitsu was not deeply involved in bringing up young Tsunayoshi. Instead, the leading figure in young Tsunayoshi's life was his mother, known by her honorific name, Oltama. Oltama was originally from a merchant family based in Kyoto. Her parents, being practical, business-minded folks, had educated their young daughter as best they could, knowing that an intelligent daughter was just as valuable as an educated son under the correct circumstances. That education, combined with Otama's natural grace, had enabled her to catch the eyes of the Tokugawa government, the leadership of which then arranged for her to become a Tokugawa concubine. It also made her well-suited to educate her own boys, including Tsunayoshi. Tsunayoshi, however, quickly distinguished himself above and beyond the other kids. He was apparently quite precocious, brighter even than children substantially older than him. This overjoyed his mother, but it also brought him to his father's attention, and daddy was not happy. Iemitsu, you see, had already picked out an heir for himself, a child he believed would be the most like him, Tokugawa Ietsuna. Ietsuna was Tsunayoshi's half-brother. He was the child of a different concubine. Apparently, he was something of a doormat, which is why his dad liked him so much. So Iemitsu felt that Tsunayoshi was a threat to his chosen heir, Perhaps he saw a bit of his own fraught and tragic relationship with his brother in the whole situation. If that was the case, he decided to handle things differently this time. Rather than imprisoning Tsunayoshi, he ordered a change to the boy's education. Tsunayoshi would not be brought up like a samurai, with a focus on the arts of war. Instead, his father would train the child to match the boy's own natural inclinations and raise him as a scholar. Now, very little is known of this time in Tsunayoshi's life. In fact, I can only tell you two things for certain. First, Tsunayoshi took well to this change. Already bookish, he devoured everything the scholars who tutored him threw his way, and developed a passion for both Confucian philosophy and Buddhist theology. Second, Tsunayoshi appears to have been handily ignored by both his father and his half-brother, to the satisfaction of all parties. However, in 1651, Dear Dad Iemitsu passed on, leaving behind Iatsuna as his heir. However, Iatsuna was only ten, as such, a regency council would rule in his name. Said regency actually did do a pretty good job, suppressing a series of rebellions by ronin, or masterless samurai, who were out of work thanks to the downsizing of the samurai class that had been taking place over the past few decades, 
as daimyo shrunk down to their peacetime forces, so to speak. The problem was that, as powerful regents are wont to do, the Regency Council didn't really want to give power back to Iatsuna, even once he reached an age where he could rule for himself. Iatsuna, so far as I've been able to find, didn't really fight this very much, which was all fine and good by his regents. Instead, Iatsuna busied himself with what was, by all accounts, a very nice relationship with his wife, though they failed to have a biological child, and with rebuilding the city of Edo, which had been burned down in 1657 by one of the periodic massive fires that you get in a city that's extremely dense and made mostly of wood. As he grew older, Iatsuna chafed under the confines of this Regency Council, but for whatever reason, I'm honestly not really sure why, never really pushed for independence from them. He always seemed, if not content, then at least willing to operate under the confines of their direction. Perhaps he was just an unambitious soul, it does happen, who knows? Through all of this, young Tsunayoshi labored in relative obscurity, reading his books and focusing on relatively little outside of his studies. And likely he would have stayed that way, except that fate tossed him something of a curveball. In 1680, Tokugawa Iatsuna died very suddenly, still without a direct heir. And that created a good old-fashioned succession crisis, because technically, since Iatsuna had no heir, the position of shogun was now open. In cases like this, the Tokugawa shogunate had a series of backup families, the Shimpan Daimyo, Tokugawa relatives from whom the Bakufu could draw a successor. The obvious choice from the Shimpan families was Tsunayoshi himself. He was old enough to rule in his own right, he was qualified, he was smart, and he was well-educated. Yet those exact qualities also made Iatsuna's old regents rather nervous. One in particular, Sakai Tadakiyo, was very worried that Tsunayoshi would try to push the regents out of power. Instead, Sakai suggested an alternative path. Why not elevate the son of the current emperor into power? It seems that Sakai's goal in suggesting this was to follow the precedent of the old Kamakura shogunate and its Hojo rulers. Remember that the Hojo had ruled in the name of a powerless shogun from the imperial court, who in turn ruled in the name of a powerless emperor in that same court. Sakai appears to have wanted to emulate this. He was an established power broker and seems to have thought that he could make a play at creating the next Hojo regency and be the power behind the power behind the throne. Yet the other regents didn't really like the idea of allowing Sakai to take control of the entire country, so the majority of them supported Tsunayoshi in the end, figuring that, hey, this is just some bookish nerd, and that makes him preferable to a puppet ruler who would hand over more and more power to the ambitious Sakai. And so it was that nerdy, bookish, and intelligent Tokugawa Tsunayoshi rose to become Japan's shogun. Now, the traditional view for a long time was that Tsunayoshi was, in fact, one of the worst shoguns in Japanese history, that his very bookish nerdiness made him ill-suited to the realities of running a country. According to the traditional rendering, Tsunayoshi confirmed this very early in his reign with one of the New Year's ceremonies associated with it. 
Every year, the Shogun would assemble all of the daimyo currently in Edo as part of the Sankin Kotai system, the hostage system that required them to spend every other year in Edo attending on the Shogun in person. There, he would deliver an address to his lords, usually something short and nice, praising them for their service to the Bakufu, looking to a new good year, blah blah blah. That, however, was not how Tsuneyoshi rolled. Instead, he got up and told the assembled lords that he was going to teach them something very interesting, and then proceeded to read to them from one of the fundamental books of the classical Confucian canon, The Greater Learning. I'll put up a link to some Wikisource excerpts from the text on the website. Let's just say it's not the most riveting thing in the universe. I've not found exact numbers for how long he read from it for, but apparently he did this multiple times and made it an annual tradition, and did the same thing to the Emperor's envoys from Kyoto. In addition to his pedantic treatment of the lords upon whose loyalty his regime rested, one of the more common stories about him relates to some laws associated with his religious beliefs. The story goes that Tsuneyoshi, a very devout Buddhist, had among his retinue a Buddhist priest named Ryuko. And Tsuneyoshi also had a problem. He could not, for whatever reason, conceive an heir. Ryuko convinced Tsuneyoshi that this inability was a punishment for sins committed in past lives. Atoning for these sins, Ryuko said, should take the form of compassion towards all living things, but especially dogs, for Tsuneyoshi had been born in the year of the dog. Thus were born the Laws of Compassion, which outlawed the killing of any wild animal regardless of the circumstances, so that the people of Japan were shortly subject to packs of feral dogs and other creatures roaming the streets and doing whatever they pleased. Supposedly the stink from the dogs, some 50,000 in Edo according to the stories, was terrible and the people became incensed when an innocent apprentice was executed for violently driving away a feral dog from his master. So Tsuneyoshi ordered that the dogs be taken to Edo's suburbs, where they would be kept with government funds in fancy kennels, and fed diets of fish and meat, better, in other words, than what most people could afford. For a long time, this was the historical image of Tokugawa Tsuneyoshi, the mad pedantic Buddhist who allowed his extreme bookishness and religious obsessions to get in the way of actual rulership and thus proved to be an almost comically bad ruler. At the time, the complaint was that men were being killed for the sake of dogs. In the 1970s, history Oishi Shinzaburo wrote that Tsuneyoshi's edicts of compassion were, quote, the worst laws in the feudal history of mankind, unquote. The laws of compassion even gave Tsuneyoshi the nickname by which he's known to history, the Dog Shogun. Nor was the Dog Shogun in this salacious telling remarkable only for his idiocy about animals. He also had a wife from the influential Konoe family of Kyoto, who was a shrill and overbearing harpy, and who poisoned his children by his other wives to make sure that only hers were in a position to inherit. Eventually, according to some rumors, she poisoned Tsuneyoshi himself. This is, of course, rather ridiculous. Edo Japan still had a fairly high infant mortality rate, so to blame the death of Tsuneyoshi's young kids on poisoning is to suggest a complex cause where a simple one will do. Nor is there much to suggest that Tsuneyoshi was actually dominated by his wife, who would, one assumes, 
not want to be accosted by all of those feral dogs. In reality, this whole assessment is not entirely or even remotely fair. A new wave of historians has reassessed Tsuniyoshi's legacy by moving away from sensationalized stories about wild dogs roaming the streets and towards assessments of Tsuniyoshi's actual policies. So what were Tsuniyoshi's actual policies? Well, he did pass some edicts on animal cruelty, but they were just that, animal cruelty laws, not bans on harming animals for any reason whatsoever. And the biggest beneficiary of his laws were not animals, but the common people. One of Tsuniyoshi's earliest edicts was straightforward and to the point on this issue. It read, quote, The common people are the foundation of the state. Each and every one of the officials must be attentive to the hardship of the people, and is hereby ordered to see that they do not suffer misfortunes such as hunger and cold. Nor did Tsuniyoshi hold himself to mere abstract legislation. Famously, when one of Tsuniyoshi's ministers saw a pair of hungry, homeless men on the street, said minister did not stop to help the two, it being beneath the dignity of one of the shogun's ministers to concern himself with such trivial affairs as the fate of two people of little importance. Tsuniyoshi, however, was not pleased, and rebuked the minister publicly, saying, quote, Why should a truly benevolent man ask whether a matter is great or small? The rays of the sun and moon light up even the smallest object. In practical terms, Tsuniyoshi's concern with the common people manifested itself in laws protecting them from some of the chief abuses of the wealthy and powerful. Commoners could no longer be assaulted in the street without cause. Lords were required to provide relief for the needy and sick. Prostitution remained legal, but was more carefully regulated to protect the well-being of the women involved to some extent. Tsunayoshi, in short, attempted to enforce a Confucian idea of ideal rulership on his people. A good ruler, in the Confucian sense of that term, owes his people benevolent treatment. Their obedience to him is not absolute. It's premised on the person you're obeying being worthy of that obedience, and Tsunayoshi aimed to be worthy. But of course, restrictions on what you could do to commoners were not exactly popular among an aristocracy used to doing as it's pleased. The lords of Japan disliked Tsunayoshi immensely, both because of his restrictions on them and because of his tendency to endlessly moralize at them. That's not to say that Tsuniyoshi was a man of the people, at least not in the sense that we would see that term today. Again, he's the archetype, or he's trying to be the archetype, of an ideal Confucian ruler. His goal was to impose virtue on his people in the way that Confucian rulers typically did. So he posted edicts to the common people around the country, saying things like this, Diligently practice loyalty and filial piety. Be close to your husbands and wives, siblings and relatives, and show compassion and forgiveness towards even your servants. Those who are disloyal and unfilial should be severely punished. Again, not a man of the people. Instead, the message is, be good or else. It is, above all else, Suniyoshi's moralizing that really earned him his negative reputation. His attempt to make Japan a more genuinely Confucian society angered the powerful lords who served him. However, there wasn't much immediately that they could do about it. 
The balance of power that Tokugawa Ieyasu had so carefully crafted to ensure that his successors ultimately controlled Japan's wealth and power still held. Rebellion would be suicidal. Besides, Tsuneyoshi's policies were for sure annoying, but not so annoying that they were necessarily worth starting a civil war over. However, there was one good long-term remedy open to Tsuneyoshi's opponents, good old-fashioned character assassination. The people writing the history of the Edo period, as in most periods of human history, were the rich and educated. That meant that they came from the upper classes, who did not like Tsuneyoshi's policies, and they evaluated him very harshly as a result, and even included a great many baseless rumors and over-exaggerations. Their goal was to tarnish Tsuneyoshi's historical image, and frankly it worked pretty well. For a long time, he was thought of as a crazed and poor ruler. Today he's viewed more favorably, but not entirely so. His sensibilities, though somewhat sympathetic, are not modern. He was a benevolent despot, akin to the enlightened autocrats of Europe like Louis XIV or Catherine the Great or Frederick II of Prussia. Reform-minded rulers who used absolute power to push a very specific political vision that was not always popular with the people it was being imposed on. Beyond his reforms, Tsuneyoshi is noteworthy for a few of his other works as well. First, in 1691, he presided over one of the regular Sankin Kotai processions of the Dutch mission in Nagasaki. Remember that the Dutch, like any daimyo, were expected to attend on the shogun in Edo at a regular basis. The purpose of these visits was twofold. First, to remind the Dutch who ran the show around these here parts. Second, to impress the shogun's other subjects with how powerful the shogun was, that these men from a far and distant land came personally to demonstrate their loyalty. Included on this mission was one Engelbert Kempfer, a Dutch naturalist and physician who took careful notes of his time in Edo. His journals are actually available, though very expensive in English translation, and are worth a read if you can get them. Kempfer described his time in Tsuneyoshi's court, noting that the shogun was intellectually curious and asked the Dutch many questions about life in Europe. He ordered them to paint in the Dutch style, to sing, to recite things in other languages they knew, many of the Dutch being multilingual and fluent in the other languages of Europe. He even ordered them to demonstrate European methods of courtship on each other, complete with a demonstration of how Europeans kissed, which, according to Kempfer, the ladies of the court found very amusing. All of this was clearly supposed to be political theater, a demonstration of the shogun's power that he could order people around like this. But it wasn't just that, because the shogun did arrange for things to go both ways. He arranged for the Dutch to view a no performance, for example, something that could very much be termed a moment of cultural exchange. Tsuneyoshi was also shogun during the time of the 47 Ronin incident, and was responsible for determining how to punish the Akko Ronin who had obtained revenge for their master. His decision to have them die while still honoring them with the right to commit ritual suicide was, I think, a pretty good compromise. All told, I think, Tsuneyoshi was a pretty good shogun. He was actively invested in the well-being of his subjects, and while he took a somewhat dictatorial approach to imposing his idea of virtue, he lived in a time when that was the norm. 
Probably the worst thing you can really say about him is that he didn't handle subordinate lords with a particularly delicate touch. But then again, it's not like he had to treat them particularly nicely. The material economic base of Tokugawa superiority was still in place during the reign of Tokugawa Tsuniyoshi. The shogun still commanded a vast amount of wealth and could raise and support massive armies. He wielded a substantial and energized bureaucracy. He did not have to play nice with the other children. In the end, I would actually mark Tsuniyoshi as one of the shogunate's more effective leaders, despite the character assassination committed against him by contemporaries who did not agree with his policies. Indeed, when Tsuniyoshi did die in 1709, after just short of 30 years as shogun, he left Edo Japan at the zenith of its wealth and prosperity. Clearly he was doing something right, or at least not doing too many things that were wrong. I think at least some of his success can be attributed to his upbringing, specifically to the education provided by his mother Otama, and to the fact that nobody expected him to be Shogun and that he was never raised with that expectation. We've talked a bit about the phenomenon of being born in the purple, of being raised as a nigh-untouchable prince of great social status, and how that can really mess with a kid's head. And it's worth noting that Tsuniyoshi was never raised that way. He himself never expected to be Shogun until the job basically fell in his lap. The fact is that Tsuniyoshi's energy as a ruler and his active engagement in leadership were unlikely traits to appear in someone who had been raised from birth as a prince, because someone raised that way would be used to taking advice from counselors and used to enjoying and indulging the pleasures and privileges of their position. That's why Tsuniyoshi was such a disrespected figure in the histories of the time. He wanted to rule in his own right and had a clear vision of what he wanted to do, rather than accepting a vision foisted on him by his counselors. Again, I really do think that Tokugawa Tsuniyoshi was one of Japan's better shoguns. He showed what someone who came into the job with vision could accomplish. While it didn't win him many friends, it does make him worth remembering today. That's all for this week and for the year 2017. I'll be taking the next two weeks off to spend some time with family and enjoy the holidays, and to watch Star Wars Episode Eight as many times as I possibly can. I'll see you all again on January 6th. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Paul Wilcox, Joel B. Lee, Eunice Panetta, Keaton Wallace, Corey Mendel, Matt Bruckner, and William Gardner for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and have a happy new year.